0: السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقده من لساني يفقهوا قولي ربنا زدنا علما باب من ترك ذا وان هو لفت بعض سم اوف الاختياري وذا اختيار مين جويس so, a matter concerning which he has a choice. Meaning, if he does it or if he doesn't do it, it's not that big of a deal. It's not something that is wajib or fard that he has to do. Or it's not something that is haram that he has to refrain from. It is, you know, something of choice. So, he leaves some of it. He doesn't do it. Why? Mahafata Out of fear of. And that يَقْصُرَ It has qasr, meaning it falls short. It is deficient. What falls short? Fahmu the comprehension, the understanding of barlin nasi of some people anhu from it fayakru so they will fall fi in ashad that which is more severe than that, that which is more worse than that. So, can a person leave something with regards to which he has a choice? Why, out of fear that some people will not be able to understand it, if he does it or if he says it. If he mentions it, some people will not be able to understand it. Why? Because they're not at that level. And if he mentions it, what will happen? People will fall into fitna. So is he concealing knowledge? Is he hiding something that he should not be hiding? No. A person has that choice. And sometimes it is better not to mention something. Why? Because it can cause greater harm. The harm exceeds the benefit. But remember, when it comes to Something that is wajib, something that is necessary Then do you have a choice concerning that? No So for example if somebody asks you And you know that they don't like to do it If they ask you Is it necessary to pray salah five times a day? And you know that they don't like to pray Then what are you supposed to say at that time? Yes it is It doesn't mean that you become harsh with them You say it in a manner that they don't like No You explain to them, you tell them nicely You make it logical for them But You don't have a choice concerning that. You have to give the answer and you have to tell them what is wajib. But if it's a matter that is not wajib, that is not haram, if you have a choice concerning that, it is mubah, then what should you do? You can choose not to say it. You can choose not to mention it. Why? Because then people will fall into a greater fitna. People will fall into a greater fitna. Why? Because they are not at that level to understand. So, what do we learn from this... From this Bab, from this chapter heading, that if a person does not impart all knowledge that he has for a genuine reason, then it is not a sin upon him. You don't have to give all of the information that you know. You don't have to pass on everything that you know because it will cause people to be in problems. Haddathana ubeidullah ibn Musa an Israel an Abi Ishaq al Aswadi. Qala he said, Qala he said to me, who said to who? Ibn Zubayr. So Abdullah ibn Zubayr, he said to me, who does me refer to? Al-Aswad. So Aswad is the one who is narrating it. And Ibn Zubayr said to him, that كانت عائشة, عائشة رضي الله she used to, to إليك. She used to confide in you. Meaning she used to share some secrets with you. She used to tell something that she did not tell everybody of. كثيرا, much, meaning a lot. She used to tell you many things Only you and not to everybody. Why would she do that? Who was Aswad? Aswad was the nephew of Aisha radhilawanha. And Abdullah ibn Zubayr was also the nephew. And we learned that that Aisha radhilawanha, she taught her male relatives. Especially Abdullah ibn Zubayr as well as Aswad. So, you can imagine that if a person has two students or there are two people and one learns about something and the other doesn't know, then the other will be curious. Isn't it so? So likewise, Abdullah ibn Zubayr he was curious. So he said to Aswad, so she used to tell you many things. Tell me, what did she tell you concerning this matter? فَمَا حَدَّثَتْكَ So what did she narrate to you? حَدَّثَتْ She ka to you Filkarba Concerning the Karba. What did she tell you about the kaaba Kultu? I said, meaning Aswad said, She said to me, قَالَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ The Messenger of Allah وسلم, He said, Ya Aisha, O Aisha, لولا قَوْمُكِ If it was not for your people Hadithun new عَهْدُهُمْ Their era Their time Meaning If they had not recently entered into Islam Your people had not recently become Muslim ah, just does not just mean promise okay, It has many meanings so if they had not... Re- and hadith over here does not mean speech. But what does it mean? New. It's being used in its literal sense. So had they not recently embraced Islam, had their Islam not been new, and if I had not had fear of their kufr, Qala ibn زبير, ibn Zubay, he said this when he was narrating, be kufrin, of kufr, meaning the Prophet ﷺ was afraid that because they are new Muslims, they might revert to disbelief because of such and such. لَنَقَطُوا لَنَقَطُوا Surely I would definitely... Dismantle What? al kabata The ka'bah Meaning I would cause it to be demolished Faj'altu laha So I would make for it Meaning the ka'bah Bābaini Two doors Bābun One door Yadukhul nas The people would enter from Wababun And a door yakhrujun They would come out of Fafa'lahu Ibn Zubayr So Ibn Zubayr He did it So this was the wish of the Prophet ﷺ to construct the Ka'bah in a way that it would have two doors so that people can enter one door and leave the other. And the Prophet ﷺ did not do so. Why? Because the people had recently embraced Islam. Many people had. And we know that the mushrikeen, they had a lot of respect, a lot of love for the Ka'bah. And if the Prophet ﷺ would reconstruct the Ka'bah, then what would happen? They would fall into a lot of fitna. The Prophet had ikhtiyar concerning this. He had a choice. It wasn't wajib. It wasn't mandatory to construct the Kaaba in this way. No, this was something that he wished. This is something that he liked. He wanted to do it, but it was not something mandatory. If it was mandatory, he would have done it. But it was not mandatory. So, he did not do it. So this shows us, teaches us a very, very important lesson. That when it comes to matters which are mubah, don't make a big deal out of them. When it comes to matters which are not Wajib, they are not haram. Don't make a big deal out of them, because if you do so, then people will fall into fitna. The question is, why did the Prophet ﷺ want to reconstruct the Kaaba? Why did he want to make it in a way that there would be two doors to it? The reason is that the Kaaba that was present at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the way it was constructed, it was not constructed on the original foundations. It was not constructed on the original foundations so he wanted that the building be demolished and reconstructed again on the original foundations as ibrahim a.s. had built it and when the kaaba would be built over there he would have two doors as well an addition that he would make that he wanted to make i'll tell you a little bit of history about the construction of the kaaba who is the first one who constructed the kaaba what do we know adam alayhisalam is the first person to construct the kaaba and the angels also participated in the construction of the Kaaba, you can imagine, you know, there was no way that stones could be brought and cut and a building be built, especially by one man. So the angels are the ones who also participated in the construction of the Kaaba, and this is what we learn in the Quran that Inna baitin nas bi The first house to be built was where in Makkah, and Adam alayhi was the one to construct it. And we learned that at the time of the floods of Nuh alayhi the Kaaba, it is said that it was lifted up from the earth it was lifted up and what we know to be baitul ma'mur is that structure okay so that structure that was present on earth built by adam alayhi salam was lifted up into the heavens and now it is baitul ma'mur where the angels go and perform tawaf so there was no more kaaba then so who constructed the kaaba again ibrahim alayhi so Ibrahim alayhi salam did the second construction of the Kaaba and Ibrahim and Ismail alayhi salam and we learn about it in the Quran wa id yarfa'u Ibrahimul qawa'ida min Ismail both of them were raising the foundations of the bayt meaning they were constructing it and after that obviously there were many times that the Kaaba was fixed or you know or renovated you can say however the foundations were the same as those that Ibrahim alayhi salam had made and we know that sometime before the Prophet ﷺ received prophethood, there were floods in Makkah and the Kaaba. You know, it was also affected. So the Quraysh, the Mushrikeen, they had to reconstruct the Kaaba. Okay, there was a huge flood, and as a result of that, the Kaaba was demolished, and they had to reconstruct it. So when they were reconstructing the Kaaba, what happened was that they fell short in the material that they had. And they could not make the Kaaba as big as it was. They could not construct it as big as it was on the original foundations. And this shows that the Quraysh, the Mushrikeen, uh, the, the Arabs, they were, some of them were very wealthy, but still, they were not that wealthy. Especially at that time. Why? Because they were desert dwellers, right? So, they fell short in their material and they constructed the Kaaba slightly smaller than the original size. And we know that the Prophet ﷺ also took part in this construction. And we know that he is the one who placed the Hajar Aswad. And everybody was uh, happy with that. Everybody agreed to that. And at the conquest of Makkah, the Prophet ﷺ, he expressed his desire to construct the Kaaba the way Ibrahim ﷺ had constructed it. He wanted that the Ka'wah should be on the original foundations. It should be big. And and he didn't do so. Why? Because all people would not be ready to accept it. And it would cause them fitna in their faith. So this is the reason why the Prophet ﷺ did not do it. And he did not even tell everybody about it. He confided in his wife, Aisha رضي الله And Aisha رضي الله she after the death of the Prophet ﷺ told her nephew... Aswad And he told Ibn Zubair And when Abdullah ibn Zubair He took power of Makkah We know that there was Fitna He revolted And he took power of Makkah At that time We know that Forces were sent Against him As we learned earlier And those armies They attacked Makkah From outside And it is said That catapults Were used to hurl stones And because of that Many buildings Were affected Including the Kaaba The Kaaba Was also affected To the point That it was almost Ruined Demolished So Abdullah ibn Zubayr, he had to reconstruct the Kaaba. So when he reconstructed the Kaaba, he constructed it on the original foundations. Because he knew that the Prophet expressed his wish. And before reconstructing, they found the original foundations. They dug, and when they discovered the original foundations, they built the Kaaba on that. And he made the Kaaba in such a way that there were two doors. One door through which people would enter, and the other through which they would leave. And then what happened? It was like that until Abdullah ibn Zubayr, he lost power. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, he took over. And the Khalifa, Abdul Malik al-Murwan, he commanded, he instructed Hajjaj to demolish the Kaaba again and reconstruct it as it was at the time of the Prophet ﷺ. Why? Out of enmity against who? Abdullah ibn Zubayr. But when Abdul Malik was informed about the wish of the Prophet ﷺ, he said, had I known, I would not have commanded, I would not have instructed it. Because there were human beings, there was fitna. And so then the Kaaba was as it was at the time of the Prophet ﷺ. And then after some time, when the Umayyad khilafat collapsed and the Abbasids, they gained power, their Khalifa, he was about to, he decided that he was going to demolish the Kaaba again and have it constructed as Abdullah ibn Zubair constructed. But then Imam Malik, he intervened. And he said, stop it. Stop it. لا تجعل بيت الله Lil للملوك. Don't make the house of Allah a toy, you know, something that the kings are playing with. That one king comes and he builds a castle, a a structure, and the other king comes and he destroys it in enmity against him, and the other comes and he destroys it. The house of Allah is not a game. This is not something that you can play with. So have respect for the house of Allah. Imam Malik, he opposed it very strongly, and the Khalifa, he listened to him. And he decided not to touch the Kaaba, not to change its its architecture. And till today it is the same. And yes many times the Kaaba has been reconstructed for the purpose of improvement or because of being affected by you know weather and and over time. It does get affected. So it has been rebuilt several times. However the structure, the architecture has been kept the same as it was at the time of the Prophet So the Kaaba has only one door and there is a part of it that is on the outside that is left. And we know that as the Hatim or the Hijr. Now, you might wonder that this was the wish of the Prophet ﷺ, and that is how Ibrahim ﷺ had constructed the Kaaba. So, I mean, it was a good wish. So now that the Muslims know, and now that there is some stability, so shouldn't we build the Kaaba as the Prophet ﷺ wanted it to be? The thing is that if again this begins the reconstruction of Kaaba in a different form, in a different structure, then this is going to continue. One king after the other, one government after the other, one ruler after the other. So out of respect for the Ka'bah, we should leave it as it is. And especially because there is ikhtiyar concerning it. There is a choice concerning it. If it was really that big of a deal, the Prophet would have it done. If he didn't touch it, if he didn't have it done, so that means that we don't have to worry too much about that either. And there is much benefit in the way that the Ka'bah is now, in the way that it has been left. If there were two doors to the Ka'bah, One way people would enter, the other they would leave. Who would leave? Who would move? Nobody would move. People would suffocate to death. There would be stampedes. And people who were doing tawaf outside of the kaaba, their tawaf would be interfered, their tawaf would be interrupted. Many people would be killed in this way. Even now, people die, people faint in their attempt to go touch the Hajar. In their attempt to just touch the door of the kaaba. Imagine if people would be allowed to enter the Kaaba, how much chaos there would be. So there is definitely benefit in this. And the wish of the Prophet ﷺ is fulfilled in another way. He wanted that there be two entrances to the Kaaba, One through which people enter and the other through which people leave. The Kaaba, right around it, right by it on one side is the Hatim, right? The Hijr. And that is... The part that was part of the original structure But they weren't able to include that Due to shortage of materials So they left it out But if you look at it There is a wall that is built around it you know, And there are two entrances to it So people can enter through one And leave through the other And there is an added benefit to that People are not as attached to the Hatim As they would be to the Kaaba itself So yes, people go and they pray over there They stand over there They make dua over there but it's not as bad as it could have been if there were two doors to the Karba. So this shows to us that you know, whatever Allah decides, whatever Allah decrees, then we should be happy with it and we should accept it. If the Prophet wasallam accepted it, then we should also accept it and we should also be happy with it. There is always, always hikmah in the decisions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whether they are kawni or they are shuddery. Anything you'd like to add before we continue?
1: If there are some things as, uh, that are mubah, we shouldn't make a big deal of out of it. How do we do this in, in daily life? Like, Could you please get an example? Like, this is like a huge, huge thing. Like, I'm just talking about ordinary things in life.
0: Like, for example, if somebody doesn't want to eat a particular food, they have the choice to eat it or not eat it. It's not fard on them to eat it. It's not haram on them to not eat it. They have a choice. So if they choose to eat it or they choose not to eat it, don't make a big deal out of it. For example, some people, I know a friend of mine who's very health conscious, who's very careful about what she eats. You know, she avoids all processed foods. She will avoid a lot of dairy because of her health issues and because of her choices. She doesn't say that dairy is haram. She doesn't say that grains are haram. But people say to her that, you know, it's as though you were making food haram. But it's just her choice. And she has that choice. She doesn't say it is haram to eat dairy or it is haram to eat such and such food. It's her choice. Don't make a big deal out of it. Leave it. When it comes to ilm, for instance, if a verse of the Quran is being explained and you find several verses that further explain that verse. You mention one, you mention two. But is it necessary that you mention all five or six? No. You have a choice concerning that. If you mention one or two, you've fulfilled your responsibility of explaining the verse. But if you go on mentioning one after the other, after the other, it will become heavy on the people. They will forget what was being explained and they will get lost in the references. So, you have a choice. So, it's okay. Don't put people in difficulty.
2: Um, I was just thinking that when you're teaching somebody and they're beginner level, you don't teach them, and you're an advanced level. You're not going to teach them everything at once because it might scare them, and you know they might think that Deen is very hard, or you know, and it's unnecessary. So even though you know a lot, you don't need to tell everything. Everything
0: that, that you know, because especially for us, you know, for instance, grammar, it becomes so easy. So we start saying one word after the other, one term after the other, and people are like, "What did you say?" They have no idea. It is said that at the flood. Which came at the time of Nuh, the Kaaba was lifted up. Okay? It was lifted up to the heavens, and now it is the Baytul Ma'mur. That structure has been taken up into the heavens, and that is the Baytul Ma'mur around which the angels perform tawaf. And this is something that's perfectly, that's absolutely easy for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If He could lift up Isa, then He can definitely lift up the house of Allah as well. If the angel can come down with wahi, then something can also go up. Allah knows what comes down and what goes up. مَا يَنزِلُ وَمَا يعرج. بَاب مَنْ خَصَّ بالعلم The one who خَصَّ He specified, he made خَص بِالْعِلْمِ with علم قَوْمًا a people دُونَ قومن. and not other people. Instead of, rather than, other people. Why? كراهية. Out of dislike, out of fear أَلَّا That they will not understand. That a person selects certain people for some ilm and he does not make it public everyone is not allowed to come into that majlis everyone is not allowed to attend that class is that okay? yes, why? because everyone is not at the same level of ilm some people, their level is higher is advanced and some people, their level is just beginner or intermediate and if beginners are mixed with the advanced levels, then what will happen? What will happen? Both parties will get discouraged. Both parties will not be able to benefit. Why? Because the advanced will be prevented from going forward. And the beginners will be affected in the sense that they will not be able to understand anything and they will get discouraged and they might misunderstand and they might get very offended or they might get upset or they might not fully grasp what is being explained because their level is not as the level of other people this is just like when it comes to university courses to take certain courses you have to have taken certain prerequisites if you haven't taken those prerequisites you're not allowed to come to that class, you're not allowed to take that course why? because you're not at that level and until you reach that level you cannot fully benefit from what is being taught In fact, your thinking or your understanding might be wrong. You might misunderstand. You might get frustrated and you might leave. So if a person does not allow certain people, if a teacher does not allow certain people from coming to a particular class, then is it concealing knowledge? Is it depriving them from seeking knowledge? No. There should be a reason. There should be a reason. Because many times people say, That if you don't let us attend this course, take this course, then you're depriving me and you'll be asked about it. No. The teacher has the choice. And in fact, it is in the favor of that student. This is not concealing knowledge. And this also shows to us, this Bible also teaches us that the teacher should always keep in mind and be considerate of the level of the students. Give them what they can take. Give them what they can understand and always check the you know the mafasid in contrast to the masalih the the harm in contrast to the benefit what is greater you know for example a person could come and take an advanced level course for instance this course but if they don't even know how to read arabic they have no idea about the meaning of the quran they have never been exposed to such knowledge then what will happen they will get very discouraged a person who was perhaps An A student is failing practically every test, so they'll be very, very discouraged. So, a person must be very careful about who is in front of them and give them what they are able to take and only allow those students to study something that they can understand. Otherwise, what will happen? They will be discouraged and they will also discourage other people. Never study this. Too hard. Too difficult. So, this way, the harm will outweigh the benefit. So always consider the two. وَقَالَ عَلِيٌّ And Ali said, meaning Ali الله anhu, حَدِّثُ النَّاسِ narrate to the people, meaning teach them what? بِمَا يَعْرِفُونَ بِمَا with that which يعْرِفُونَ they know, meaning they are able to learn. Narrate to the people what they're familiar with, what they can take, what they can understand. أتحبون, do you love and you Allah wa ورسوله that Allah and his messenger should be denied meaning if you give to people what they cannot understand what they cannot take then what will happen they will refuse to accept what Allah has said they will refuse to accept what the messenger sallallahu has said and you don't want that so don't put people in fitna don't cause them to disbelieve rather give them what they can take حَدَّثَنَا عُبَيْدُ اللَّهِ بْنِ مُوسَىٰ عَنْ مَعْرُوفِ بْنِ عَنْ أَبِي الطُفَيْلِ عَنْ عَلِيٍ So, we see that people should be given what they can take and what is not possible for them to understand, then don't give it to them, even if it may be from the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Even if it is something from the Qur'an, even if it is something from the Hadith, don't give it to them unless they can take it, unless they are able to understand it. Because if you tell them, then what's going to happen? They will not be able to take it and they will disbelieve. They will reject. So what is greater? What is more worse? Ignorance or disbelief? What is worse? Disbelief. I remember hearing a story about there was once upon a time a king who wanted to become Muslim. He was interested in Islam but he asked that I love alcohol, I cannot leave it. So what should I do? They said, no, you have to leave alcohol if you want to become Muslim. He says, fine, I won't. He didn't accept Islam. And as a result, his people also didn't accept Islam. I mean, alcohol is definitely haram. But he could have been told another way, that accept, become Muslim, and you know we'll see afterwards. We'll see afterwards. The people who embraced Islam, initially at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, when the commands concerning alcohol and zina and all of that were not revealed, they were still involved in such things. And gradually the commands came. Because it's not possible for a person to change immediately, especially when these habits are so strong, are a part of them. So give to the people what they can take. So for instance, if a beginner group or people who are not that aware of the Qur'an, of Ulum quran if you're telling them, oh, this verse is abrogated, then what's going to happen? They're going to be confused. If you tell them, oh, there's another qira'a as well, they're going to be like, what? There's another recitation as well of this word and it says this, they'll be surprised? It will cause them to doubt the Qur'an. So give to the people what they can take. Don't give them what they're not able to take, even if it may be from the Qur'an and sunnah. But does it mean you don't give them what is in the Qur'an and sunnah at all? No. You're going to build them. build their level of ilm gradually, one step after the other. And then eventually, you give them. So for example, if a person is learning fiqh, it's the first fiqh course they're taking. Are you going to confuse them with all different opinions? So they're like, okay, so does it break my wudu or does it not break my wudu? Everything is okay and everything is not okay. What am I supposed to do? So a basic course, basic fiqh, don't teach people about all the opinions out there because you're going to make people confused. So for instance, in the course that you were taught over here, We just teach you simple fiqh. What the evidence is from the Qur'an, what the evidence is from the sunnah. We don't go into the opinions of scholars. We don't go into the madhahib. Why? Because then people get confused. So gradually build them up. Gradually increase their level.
3: And he kept asking, like, do I have to pray five times a day? Do I have to give up this and this? And, uh, like, basically what we tried to tell him was that uh, just accept Islam and then later you can you can do it on your own pace. But that wasn't enough. Like, basically people had to convince him that, you know what, it's, um, basically we said that, you know, Islam is like an apple. You take a bite at a time. Rather than try to gulp the whole apple, what will happen? You won't be able to chew it up. Yes. So that kind of, accept like, he kind of accepted that. And subhanAllah, as soon as he did his shahada, he himself is like, so, so how will I learn how to pray? Like nobody said, come, let, I will teach you or anything. He himself seemed like, subhanahu wa ta'ala, like a different person you could see instantly. Like, And I was thinking how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives the sin once a person accepts. So, you know, it's like just the in trying to prevent him from taking the, the shahada. But as soon as they take the shahada, it's almost like the fitrah comes out. Like yes. the sisters start saying, so where can I get the hijab? How do I wear it? And the brothers start saying, so how do I do this and this? You know what I mean? Like, so it's just that initial stage.
0: But if you tell them from before, you can't have this food, you can't have this, and these cookies that you've been having, they have, you know, this byproduct in them, so don't touch them, they'll be like, this Islam is too difficult. They'll get intimidated and they will never come near Islam. So,
2: I just remember Dr. Zakir Naik when he was talking about dawah and he mentioned the same situation where if someone asks, well, I can't stop you know, zina or drinking, etc. And he said that, remember, like remind them that the greatest sin which Allah will not forgive is shirk, but everything else Allah may forgive.
0: This shows that a person may take time to improve. He doesn't have to do everything at once. It's best if he does it, but everybody's level is different. And as long as a person has the intention to get there, to become better, then inshallah, Allah is most forgiving. But if a person says, no, I'm never going to get there, I'm never going to do this, this is not for me, then that is a different case. So everybody's level is different, everybody's situation is different, everybody improves in a different way. The same is for Muslims who want to become better people. So for instance the first day If people start learning Yes, a girl has to wear hijab A person has to pray five times a day There's no choice about that But you're not going to say in the first day So you become perfect today You start praying five times a day today If you start doing that They'll run away They won't be able to keep it up But if for example They're coming to you at a particular time to learn And you tell them Okay, it's time for asr I'm going to pray Come pray with me And they pray with you Every day, when they come at that time, they pray with you. And then, you know, they're interested themselves. That, okay, if I want to pray Maghrib, how will I pray? If I want to pray Isha, how will I pray? Gradually, one after the other. Think about it. Children, even when they start praying, they have a period of three years, seven to ten. Seven to ten, three years. At seven, teach them, and at ten, be strict. If they don't, then punish them. So you have three years to improve. So people take time. They need time. So Isha is mandatory. They have to pray. So you can make some other arrangements with them. Have them nap right after uh, Maghrib and then wake them up at Isha time. okay? So that they can pray. That the change that comes gradually, that's much better. A person is more firm in it. And if a person rushes into something, then he gets exhausted, he loses steam, and then he gives up. That the wahi also that came came gradually one after the other and initially it would come, you know, with long intervals and then it started coming regularly. Everybody grows at a different pace. People learn at their own pace. Children reach their developmental miles at their own pace. They are giving us very big example. I'll give you a very small example. In Ta'limul Quran we learn Salatul Nabi and I start learning like we should do Rafaya then. So I start doing Rafaya then, and my mom saw me once, and she was furious. She said, now you change your Maslach? I'm not going to talk to you because you change your Maslach. So from that day, I say, okay, sorry, Mom, I will not do it. So I never, I make sure that I if my mom is praying with me, I never do it in front of her because I don't want her to get confused with these things because it's not like I can pray without it. So when time comes, Inshallah, I will explain her. But when some people are not ready mentally for something, they don't accept it. Yes. Like it happens with, with many women, for example, when they want to start wearing hijab, their family opposes and not, you know, they're very strongly opposing it. So, you know, at this, my suggestion is always that don't go on wearing, uh, you know, for example, an, an abaya outright. Because if you wear, you know, a black abaya, what's going to happen? It's going to scare them and it's going to make them feel very threatened and it's going to cause family problems. So we know about the minimum requirement of an abaya. So, for example, if you're wearing a skirt underneath and a jacket on top, which comes up to your knees, make sure that it's not bright and overly printed, and you're wearing a hijab that's, you know, covering you properly. Start with that, step by step, gradually. Let them accept as well. And the ideal situation is that a person does everything at once, because we have been told fastabiqul khayrat. وَسَارِعُوا إِلَىٰ رَبِّكُمْ So we have been told to rush in good deeds. That's definitely true. And it's ideal. But everyone is not able to do that. And we should not ignore or belittle the challenges that people face. You know, we think it's easy. If a husband does not accept you wearing hijab, leave him. Wow, very easy to say that. But do you know how difficult that is? Do you know how challenging it may be? How much disaster it can, you know, cause to a family? And people might turn away from the deen just because of you then. So when the allowance is there, then take benefit from the allowance. It doesn't mean that if you are able to do the very best, then still you go for, you know, the allowances. No. The allowances are for who? For people who need them. Okay, so for example, your daughter is not ready for hijab, so what should you do? I'll tell you what my mother did with me. When I was young, before 12 years of age, I would wear hijab, I would not wear hijab. Sometimes I would wear it, sometimes I wouldn't wear it. Some days I would wear it to school, other days I won't wear it to school. But when I reached puberty, then after that, you know, it was understood that I have to wear it. And if I didn't wear it, my mother would be like, where is your hijab? And I remember once I, when I was older, I started wearing an abaya, you know, off and on, here there. I was probably 17 years of age and 16 or 17, something like that. And I went somewhere without my abaya. And she said, you went like this? It wasn't like, where's your abaya? Wear it. You cannot step out until you wear it. No, it wasn't like that. It was considered normal that you have to wear. I remember I had to struggle a lot. And I knew that my mother understands. And she was giving me time. And Alhamdulillah, I studied the Quran at the most perfect time. So my mother didn't have to tell me, do this. I made the choice myself. So educate your children. Teach them the deen. Let them make the choices themselves. Because I have seen it amongst, you know, in close family that people who have been forced to do certain things and they run away. As soon as they have the choice to not do something, it goes off. You know, all their lives they have been covering, but on the wedding day, it's amazing what happens. It's as if the person is not the same. And after their wedding, after their marriage, they're a different person. In their parents' house, they wore baya, hijab, naqab, because the parents forced it on them. And as soon as they were married, uh, with their husband, it's gone. So what you want is stability for your children, for your family. And for that, you have to go gradually. This hikmah is very, very important.
1: He instructed Wad uh, bin Jabal radiyallahu his that tell the people about Allah's oneness. I think this is how, the, I'm just paraphrasing, but he also said that go gradually. The, the message was that they go gradually, tell them about, this, about the Salah, that they have to pray five times. And then when they start doing that, tell them about the Zakah mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So it, there's so many examples in the Sunnah of the Prophet, sallallahu and also right the way we just saw, and in the actions also of, of an individual. So there is really no need to rush to do something that will fall flat
0: yes. afterwards. And also start from a very young age. The problem is that when children are not told at all when they're younger than when they're older and they're told, it's very hard for them. Very hard for them. If you were present at the lecture which Sheikh Muhammad al-Sharif gave at Ilm Fest of how to you know, make your children love the Qur'an, so what's the first thing he said? That make their childhood such that they love the Qur'an. They see the Qur'an, they hear the Qur'an, they want the Qur'an. And when they want it, it will come naturally. So you have to start from a young age. You know, So, for instance, when they're young, when they're small, when you will wear hijab, you show it to them. And they have their own hijab, which they can wear, you know, when they go to the masjid or when they're praying salah. And girls love to dress up. They love to do that. So, encourage them.
2: remember my
0: uh, father, may Allah have mercy on him, he used to tell me when I was a little, um, pray, and if you pray, you will go to Jannah. And Jannah is beautiful. He described Jannah for me. From there, I like to pray. Subhanallah. Alhamdulillah.
2: Yeah, when I was in a, working in Guinea and and I saw the Indonesian couples, you know the baby is born like a boy or a girl, they bring a small cap with them. So just the baby is delivered, and they want their baby girl or boy to wear the cap. So it's the girl looks so cute when it's coming out, and the boy also. So if you put them from the young age, like you said. Uh, they will never say you why. Why should I wear it after that? And one uh, she was telling that I have a two-year-old daughter, and whenever like they are going outside, uh, I keep the shoes and a scarf there. So whenever I said, okay, go bring your shoes. So when she brings the shoes, the scarf is overhanging there. So she's also bringing that with
0: her. And sometimes it happens that despite all your efforts. You know, you try indirectly, sometimes directly. You try in a nice way, trying to show from a very young age. But then as you're older, their friends are such or the influence is such that it's impossible for them to do it. Then you, you know, just as you would advise your child to do something that's necessary for them. Likewise, you will advise them to do this as well, which is necessary for them. You know, if your child decides to drop out of school, you will never accept that. And you will show it to them. You will not beat them up. You will not necessarily yell at them. You will not necessarily cut off their phone or take their laptop away. No. But you will do some things to make them realize that this is a choice, my dear, that you don't have. You have to do it. So, same thing. When it comes to those things that are, you know, we don't really have a choice about, then we have to bring them up on the table one day or the other. We have to bring them up. We cannot ignore them for too long. So anyway, the Bab is to give some knowledge to some people. You know, make it exclusively for them. Making a special class for certain individuals. حَدَّثَنَا إِسْحَاقُ بْنُ إِبْرَهِيمِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مُعَاذِ بْنُ هِشَامٍ قَالَ حَدَّثَنِي أَبِي So, Mu'ad ibn Hisham, he said that my father narrated to me. Who was his father? Hisham. عَنْ قَتَادَةَ قَالَ he said, حَدَّثَنَا أَنَسُ بْنُ مَالِكٍ أَنَّ النَّبِيَّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ That indeed the Messenger of Allah صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمُ وَمُعَادٌ وَمُعَادٌ رَدِيفُهُ رَدِيف رَدَالْفَ What does that mean? Can you think of a word from the Qur'an? One that comes behind. One that follows after. Immediately after. So, مُعَاد رَدُّلَهُ anhu Was sitting behind him. Was on his rear. Where? عَلَى Rahli on a journey. So they were sitting on an animal and the Prophet ﷺ was in the front and Mu'adh was right behind him. Just imagine, they were very close to each other. If you're sitting right behind a person, I don't know if you've done that ever on a motorbike or a bicycle, if you're right behind, very close. Qala, he said, the Prophet ﷺ said at that time, Ya Mu'adh ibn Jabal. O Mu'adh ibn Jabal. Qala, he said, Mu'adh said, ya Ya Allah, اللَّهُ سَعْدَيْكْ what does this word labayk mean? We say this also at Hajj. Here I am. Here I am present. Here I obey you. I respond to you. The word labayka is from the root letters lam ba from the word laba, which is to follow, to obey, to respond. And when a command is given, a person obeys. He carries out the command that is given. And this word labayka, ka, you. And labbay this is actually tathnia, dual. And we know in the Quran that tathnia sometimes is used for two people, but sometimes it's also used for a repeated action, not just tathnia but also plural. So, for instance, we learn al fi jahannama, al fi It doesn't mean you two throw into hellfire, but rather throw, throw, throw. The command is being given again and again. Alqi, alqi, alqi. So, لَبَّيْكَ This تَسْنِيَة is for what? That I am here, I am here. I respond to you twice. I will obey you twice. Not once, but twice. I will carry out your command again and again. So was وَسَعْدَيْكَ سَعْدَيْكَ سَعْدَيْ is from musa'ada, which is to help to be at someone's service so again sa'a this is stefania that i am ready at your service twice again and again once and twice once and again so labbaik wa sa'a this was the response of muadh ibn jabal labbaik ya Rasulullah, allah wa sa'a dayk qala the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said ya muadh o muadh and he said qala labbaik ya Rasulullah, allah wa sa'a dayk three times the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم called him And he said لَبَّيْكُ وَسَعْدِيكُ He called him again لَبَّيْكُ وَسَعْدِيكُ Called him again لَبَّيْكُ وَسَعْدِيكُ So the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم Really made him very attentive Made him very eager Very very eager To learn what he was going to say "Qala," He said The Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم then said مَا مِنْ أَحَدٍ يشهدو, There is no person who bears witness Allah ilaha إِلَّا, إلا الله, That there is no God worthy of worship but Allah وَأَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا رَسُولُ اللَّهُ And that Muhammad is a messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم. How does he say it? صِدْقًا مِنْ قَلْبِهِ صِدْقًا Truly from his heart He really means that statement He says it very consciously He knows about what he's saying And he means it from his heart He truly believes in it so anyone who says this, illa except حَرَّمَهُ اللَّهُ عَلَى النَّارِ Allah will forbid him on the fire. Meaning he will not be allowed to enter the hellfire. Such a person will not be allowed to enter the hellfire. Fire is forbidden for him. قَالَ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهُ جَبْلِ He said, O Messenger of Allah, أَفَلَا أخبرو, Shall I not inform he of it and ask the people فَيَسْتَبْشِرُوا So that they can be very happy. Should I not tell everybody about it so that they can be very happy? Qala he said then yet If you tell them then then they will do tawakkul. They will do tawakkul on what? They will only rely on this and they will not bother to do amal. So why did Muadh ibn Jabal narrate this hadith then? Wa بِهَا And Muadh ibn Jabal he informed of it Muadh near his death. Why? To refrain from sin Out of fear that he would be sinning What sin would he be committing If he did not tell people about this? The sin of concealing knowledge So he kept it with him He didn't tell anybody about it For as long as he could And then finally he told people Because it's the right of the people to know What do we see in this hadith? That the Prophet He said something very important Very You can say good, something that would be a source of very good news for people. But he discouraged that everyone be informed of it. Why? Because it will put them into fitna. It will cause them to not do amal. And we know that if a person says such a statement truly from the heart, then it's not possible that he will not do amal. He will definitely do amal. But we know that every person thinks that they're good. You ask any person, do you sin? Do you do something wrong? Are you a true believer? They will always show, they will always say that they are a good person. Everybody has a very good opinion about themselves. So if a person just relies on this and doesn't bother to do then it will you know, lead him to wrongdoing. It will lead him to actually being deprived of this reward, of this benefit, because of this false image that he can have in his mind about himself. And we see this amongst Muslims. I mean, people claim that eventually we are going to Jannah. to so do whatever you want. It's okay, Allah is forgiving. People do have such hopes in them. Next hadith. حَدَّثَنَا مُسَدَّدٌ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا قال أبي, مُعْتَمِرٌ قَالَ سَمِعْتُ أَبِي Mu'tamir, he said, I heard my father. قَالَ he said, سَمِعْتُ أنسا, I heard Anas. قَالَ he said, ذُكِرَ لِي It was mentioned to me that أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قَالَ لِمُعَاذٍ that the Prophet said to Mu'adh, Man لَقِيَ Allah, whoever meets Allah, la yushriku bihi shay'an, and he does not associate any partner with him, daqala al-jannah, he will enter Jannah. So I was informed that Mu'adh ibn Jabal was told about this by who? By the Prophet. And Mu'adh, he said, qala ala أُبَشِّرُ nas, Should I not give this good news to the people? qala the Prophet said, La no inni akhafu, indeed I fear ayyattaqilu that they will just rely on this. Now, earlier we discussed about how you shouldn't give difficult things to people that they're not ready to take because it will cause them to be in fitna. Now, likewise, we should not make the deen too easy for the people so that they do not you know, strive in it. They don't get better in their deen. Don't say to the people, yeah, this is okay, this is fine. No, don't settle for less when it comes to the deen. There should be a balance. Don't make it too hard, don't make it too easy. Don't make it too hard that they think they cannot do anything. And don't make it too easy that they think they don't have to do anything. A balance must be there. Look at Ma'ad ibn Jabal when he heard about this. He wanted to give the good news to the people. Well wishing. See he liked the rest of the people. He wanted that they should receive this good news. And they should be happy. Sometimes you know we go into an extreme of just pleasing people, giving them good news again and again. There should be a balance, Bashir and Nadir. That he heard one statement and he was so excited that he wanted to tell everybody about it because it was something that would bring good news to the people. It would make them happy. Likewise, we learn about so many things in the Qur'an that bring joy to us. Really, they make us happy and excited. So we should also tell that to other people as well so that they can be happy as well. Bab al-haya fil al-ilm. Al-haya modesty, shyness in what? In knowledge. We learnt about haya in Kitab al-Iman as well. That al-haya is min al-iman. It is a part of faith. It is from faith. And we discussed that haya is of two types. One haya is that which is praiseworthy, and the other is that which is blameworthy. Praiseworthy is the haya which prevents a person from doing wrong, and it makes a person. A better person And the blameworthy Haya is which one? Which prevents a person From doing good And causes him to Do wrong So Al-Haya' fil-ilm Shyness in knowledge When it comes to knowledge When it comes to ilm We should not have Haya' Because if Shyness is preventing us From learning From teaching From asking From finding out It causes us to be Hesitant Then this is something That's not good this is something that is not liked. Because it is preventing you from from khair. So that haya would not be good. وَقَالَ مُجَاهِدٌ And Mujahid said, لَا يَتَعَلَّمُ He will never learn. What? Ilma The knowledge. Who will never learn علم? مُستَحْيٍ A person who is shy. وَلَا مُستَكْبِرٌ The person who is arrogant. The person who is shy and the person who is arrogant. These two will never learn. They will never be able to acquire ilm. I have a grammatical question for you here. مستحيين ولا مستكبرن. What kind of muraqqab is this? مستحيين ولا ولا Because there's atf in here, right? So what's the rule that both the words, the ma'tuf and the should have the same grammatical state? But we see that mustahyin and mustakbirun. Why? Huh? Mustahyin, the kasratain, and mustakbirun, dhammatain. What should it be? It should be dhamma. Because it's marfur. Because he will never learn. He will never learn. So both should be marfur. Why is mustahiyin majroor? It's not majroor. mustahiyin is not majroor. It is actually marfur. Then why are there two kasra under it? Because you cannot have Dhamma on it. You don't say mustahyun. You don't say that. This is just like Hudan rahmatun. Hudan rahmatun. because you can't have hudun. You can't have dhammatain on huda. You understand? So Haruf Illa, these letters they don't take they don't accept every harakah. They don't accept every harakah. So whatever harakah they do take, that is what you leave on them. But the grammatical state is known by the context or by other words. Is it clear or is it confusing? Clear? Mustahiyin should technically have dhamma on it. But the thing is that mustahyin cannot take a dhamma on it because of the ya at the end. Because of the Because of the ya, basically, you cannot have tain on it. There is actually some examples that are mentioned in your grammar book as well from the Qur'an. So if you want to know more about it, look at more examples, you can find them there. So anyway, وَقَالَ مُجَاهِدٌ لَا يَتَعَلَّمُ الْعِلْمَ مُسْتَحِيٍ وَلَا مُسْتَقْبِرٌ The person who is shy, the person who is arrogant, these two can never learn. Why? Because مُسْتَحِي would be too shy to ask and مُسْتَقْبِر would say, don't bother. It's nothing. It's not that important. It's not that necessary. He will belittle knowledge. So he will not ask. He will not learn. So both will be deprived of khair. So what does it show? That a balance is required between haya and kibr. A balance is required. A person should not be too shy, too hesitant to ask anything. And at the same time, a person should not be too arrogant, thinking, I know everything, so don't bother. I, I don't care. No. A person must be eager for knowledge. And he must inquire. And also remember that Ask, even if it may be concerning a matter that's very basic, very simple. If you don't get it, if you don't understand, and if you have the opportunity to ask, ask. Don't shy away over there. Because if you don't ask, then either shyness is preventing you or pride is preventing and both are not good here. People who have a very casual attitude, that is kibr. Because if a person really valued knowledge, he would not be so casual with it. He would take it seriously. You know, what do you ignore? What do you not attach any value to? What do you think is not that important? You think you're above that? If you ever have to pour water out of a jug into a glass, then that glass has to be beneath the jug. So likewise, if a person wants to receive, he has to, you know, be humble. Humility has to be there. Because if there is humility, only then the water can come in. Only then the knowledge can come in. So humility is necessary and Confidence is also necessary Confidence not to the extent that a person becomes arrogant But confidence that enables a person to inquire To ask, to comment, to give his input That is also necessary Now, there are some matters in the deen Which people are generally shy about Meaning, they don't like to talk about those things It's not considered good in many cultures It's considered indecent in fact to talk about such things but if such things are a part of the deen, then over there also we cannot have haya. وَقَالَتْ عَائِشَةُ Aisha said, نِعْمَ النِّسَاءُ How good are the women. Which women? Nisa'ul Ansar, The women of the Ansar. How good are they that لم al haya? that shyness did not prevent them أن يتفقهن في الدين that they develop understanding in the religion. Shyness never prevented them from understanding the deen. If there was something of the deen That they had to understand They were never too shy to ask So how good are the women of the Ansar What would people say today How shameless They have no haya How overconfident Indecent Obscene No, this is not the case The thing is that when it comes to you know, Learning the deen We become very shy over there But when it comes to learning other things There is no shyness so shyness is good, but it should be at the right time, at the right place, you know, in the right way. When it comes to learning the deen, there should be no haya in those matters. And we see that some women of the Ansar, they would come and ask the Prophet wasallam such questions that a woman would be shy to ask another woman. But they would come and ask him, not because they had no haya in them, but because there should be no haya in the matters of the deen. If it is a matter of halal and haram, if it's a matter of tahara or you know impurity, and if they had to find out, they would find out, because you know it's a matter of salah, whether your salah is accepted or not. It's a matter of ghusl, whether you have to do ghusl or not. You know, a person might say, you know, do ghusl anyway. What's the big deal? No, sometimes it's not possible. You have to know. You have to know about these matters. And. It doesn't mean that a person becomes obscene or he becomes inappropriate or he starts talking about such matters in every majlis before every teacher, before every scholar. No, you shouldn't become inappropriate about it. No, stay appropriate. Have a normal attitude towards it. Don't go to extremes because the purpose is to learn. So neither be too shy nor cross the bounds. And if you think about it, you know, when when it comes to learning, a person must always have maturity. There are some such subjects, some topics that we might find very awkward or we might find very funny. So control your laughter, control your giggles, control your emotions over there. This is just like, you know, if a person has to go to a male doctor for a genuine reason for inability to control the situation, that's the only option and it's a state of extreme necessity, then at that time a person will be you know, decent in the way that they speak and they will not start giggling away or shying away. No, you stay normal. Likewise, the doctor also, what does he do? He stays normal. And if he doesn't display a normal behavior, then it's a problem, right? So similarly, when it comes to the matters of deen, you have to learn about something, even if it's a male scholar, male teacher, ask, but in a manner that is appropriate. Both have to display appropriate behavior. And the fact is that Such matters cannot be ignored. Such matters cannot be ignored. You cannot do without asking them. You cannot do without finding out about them. Because it can cause you to make serious errors. Serious errors in your salah. You know, for example, there are rulings concerning tahara, concerning intimacy, which people must be aware of. And it happens that when children start discovering their bodies or, you know, they reach puberty and such things are being spoken of in school amongst friends or they watch outside, then they're curious and they want to know. And if the parents don't tell them, then what's going to happen? They're going to start talking about such things secretly behind closed doors and it's going to lead them to greater problems. So talk about such stuff that is necessary for the children to know in the normal manner. You know, don't make it a big deal. And if a child has a question, then don't, uh, you know, say that Don't ask about these things This is something that has nothing to do with you I remember, you might find this a little strange, awkward But many women, you know, have such situations This uh, sister once told me about You know, her daughter was very curious about Why there are these small diaper-looking things Mm -hmm. in the washroom And she kept asking her mother What is this? What is this? I want it to, I want it to So the first thing is you should be careful about displaying such things in your house. You know, so that your children don't see such things. And if they do ever ask about these things, then just display normal behavior. Don't say, you know, don't make a shocking expression on your face and cover your mouth and start laughing. And No, just pretend as though it's nothing. You know, pretend as though it's nothing. Don't make a big deal out of it. You know, children, monkey see, monkey do. So whenever they see their parents doing something, they imitate. Many times it happens that, you know, children, when they see, you know, women who are expecting or who are nursing, then they start imitating them. They put a, you know, something in front of their tummy and I'm having a baby and she has a baby and he has a baby. Everybody has a baby in the tummy. Don't make it a big deal. Just act normal. Okay. What's in your hands? Did you see that car? Where's your doll? You know, distract them. Don't corrupt those innocent minds. Because the moment you start giggling, they will know it is something. And I have to find out. I have to learn about it. There are some questions which cannot be asked in front of everybody. And we will learn about how Ali رضي he had a question asked through someone because he was shy to ask directly. Because the Prophet صلى was his father-in-law and he was hesitant to do that. But he did not deprive himself of that knowledge. Rather he requested somebody else to ask. So... These questions are important and you have to answer them. Ask them in a way that is appropriate and answer them in a way that is appropriate. So for example, if there are two children, one is a girl, one is a boy, and you see that the girl is older and she is curious, she wants to know, and the boy is also there, so you tell the daughter separately. You don't have to tell the son about it as well. Or the younger daughter about it as well. Yes, alunaka, they ask you. So the people ask the Prophet and Shyness should not prevent us from learning about such matters. Because, you know, this is, you know, our physical needs, our physical body, sexuality, all of these things cannot be ignored. It's a major part of life. And we know that marriage is something that is recommended. I mean, people get married and they come across such issues. And girls do reach puberty. Boys do reach puberty. These are real issues. Real issues that cannot be ignored, and we have to be aware of them. And children must be aware of them. And when these things are being taught in school, when they are, you know, very easily available in books on the internet, then you should tell them what is allowed, what is not allowed, what the proper way is, you know, the limits of halal and haram. We should teach them so that they also learn to control themselves. They also know what is permissible and what is not permissible.
1: What well, I was thinking, you were already actually on this topic that if, especially, especially for us Muslim women, we have to tell our children what is haral and haram, because it doesn't take long for them to be exposed into whatever is being taught into the public schools and. You don't even want to go there, inshallah. So to protect yourself, you need to impart the knowledge to your children in a very sensible and very direct manner so that they understand and satisfy all kinds of curiosities they have. Yes. So they do are not left with any question that they are asking their bus driver or the girl next door or anybody.
0: Very true. And children, when they are very, very young, from that point onwards, they become very curious. This is why we learned that, you know, when children are of a particular age, then separate their beds. Because then they become very aware of these things. So when they do become curious, when they want to know, satisfy them, I'm not saying go into an extreme, but satisfy them, give them as much information as necessary. You know, for example, if a child asks, where do babies come from? You can tell them that from the mother's tummy. Allah Ta'ala, He makes the baby in the tummy and the baby comes out simple you don't have to say bird brings it you no know, we we brought the baby from the hospital you know the child knows there's something wrong with the mother's body it's not normal so tell them allah gave us this baby allah made the baby in the tummy so simple of course in stages you know and they will find out themselves so tell them the perspective of the deen always tell them about such things with the perspective of the deen Allah made this. Allah decided this.
2: It's so important to take this education because when I see like newly wed brides dying on the first day, first night or second night, you know, dying on the operation theatre tables because they were they don't have any knowledge of this thing. And imagine the like a bride just one day bride bride is dying. And the both couple, they don't have any information about this, how to keep the relations and how to do it. And it's so sad thing that, and believe me, like 90% of women suffer from psychological depressions and the problem because they don't know the details of these things. Mm -hmm. And they are lying such a confused and depressed life.
0: Confused, they're unsure what is allowed, what is not allowed. So this is a major part of life. And just as you have to know about Salah, you have to know about the Prerequisites of Salah And many people, you know, when they study Such ahadiths when they learn about them, they reject hadith How can something so shameful Be mentioned in the hadith, how embarrassing And you know what the yahud also, they objected As well, you know, they mocked They said, your prophet teaches you how to use the washroom They said, of course he does And he tells us which hand to use, and how to use the washroom Have a problem with that? So, you know, be confident about Such things, it's nothing to be shy of And if people need to know, tell them. And if it's mentioned in the Qur'an, if it's mentioned in the Qur'an, then there should be no shyness concerning that. And as we learned earlier, give to the people what they can take. So when they're ready, give them. And don't think that when your child is 17 years of age or when their child is ready for marriage, then they need to learn about these things. No. These days, the age comes much earlier Because they're exposed to such things So you tell them in a manner that is appropriate Just enough And tell them You know uh, This is our age That we should be focusing on our studies And you know Don't worry about relationships right now You know when you're older Inshallah you get married And you'll have a a good spouse You know Children are curious They're going out with this They have a girlfriend They have a boyfriend Explain to them That in our deen You know After marriage You have a partner Not before So explain to them in a manner that is appropriate so that it's easy for them to accept as well. Definitely innocent minds are corrupted. But if you think about it, you know, you can tell your child that, you know, this is your part of body that you have to cover. But the moment they walk out of the house, they go to a park and they see something completely different. You are living in a different society. And you have to teach your children from a young age to lower your gaze. Honestly, I take my son to the park and he's noticing things that he didn't notice last year. So I take him at a time that is, you know, suitable. Other people are not there. It's more hard for me, more difficult for me. But I make that, you know, I make that effort. And when he's looking, I distract him. Where's your water bottle? Where's your juice box? Where are your chips? Is Radia okay? You know, I ask him such questions to distract him so that he's not looking at other people. And he looks, you know, at what his business is. The billboards there have uh, new pictures. And how do you stop a 13-year-old from looking? Because his mouth was wide open. And suddenly you see these things mm-hmm. that you're not exposed to. So we had to sit him down. My husband had to sit him down and explain to him that this is, you know, this is part of a female body or a male body. And we're not supposed to look at those things as Muslims. You're supposed to lower our gaze. And you choose appropriate times. And when, as and when things come and happen, you start telling them. And pre-puberty is a perfect time to start preparing them, I think. Yes. And children are naturally curious at that time because the older sister is not praying and what's happening, why is she not praying, she's not fasting, right? So children become naturally curious. If you think about it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put it into, you know, our human nature. Gradually we grow. So when they're curious, satisfy them. When they need to know, then tell them what the appropriate way is. And, you know, for example, if your daughter, she reaches the age of puberty, she should know she should know about it from before that you know this is something that happens so that she knows how to deal with that situation. Otherwise, if she has no idea, I'm sure you've heard stories of people who had no idea what it was and they were in total mess. I know of a lady, she said she thought she had cancer. She was crying and crying and crying away. She thought she was going to die because she had no idea. It can cause such things. And the same thing with boys. Even they need to know about what concerns them. And, It's the father's responsibility to teach the boy, and you know, you feel the father is not doing his job, then the mother has to. It is your responsibility that you teach your son what he needs to know. It's important for him. And if you're shy, then Alhamdulillah, there's so much literature out there, so much literature, Islamic literature, Islamic fiqh books. You know, mark some pages, highlight some parts, and tell him, you have to read this, please. And if you you have any questions, ask me or ask, you know, this older uncle or older brother or whoever but you need to know about this okay subhanakallahumma bihamdika la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik assalamu wa rahmatullahi wa